And so what we've done is we've created an entire healthcare system that's focused on keeping you at work, not keeping you alive. It's just too short-term oriented. And you kind of know this, right? Because just ask yourself, like the last, I don't know, three, four, five times you went to the doctor, like what'd you go for? Usually it's like, well, I went for my rash, my flu, I went for my cold. It's like, okay, awesome. Except you just spent the last like, whatever, 20 minutes you have a doctor talking about a rash instead of talking about the thing that's going to kill you. Like this is insane. In fact, you know this, go up to a doctor, get your checkup. And I promise you nine out of 10 times, they're going to look you in the eyes and say, you're good to go. You're healthy. And I'm just sitting there. I'm like, what do you mean I'm healthy? Like, what's my probability of death? A hundred percent. Like, what does that even mean to tell me I'm healthy? Like, I'm going to die. Tell me what I can start doing to kind of prevent those issues. What they're saying is you're not sick enough for me to care yet. But if your shit gets really bad, that's when I'll start focusing on it because it, it starts to enter into that two-year window that the employer pays for and thinks about, right? And that's the problem of healthcare in America. That's like, in some ways, the incentives that we've created have caused all this massive amount of misalignment. Welcome back to The Peel, where we explore the world's greatest startup stories. I'm your host, Turner Novak, founder of Banana Capital, your doctor's favorite venture capital firm. Today, I talk to Adrian Ayun, co-founder and CEO of Forward Health. Forward is rebuilding healthcare from the ground up, building an operating system for healthcare using modern technology like the internet, AI, and sensors. They're turning healthcare from a service into a product. We talk through the history of modern healthcare and why most of the problems in the industry that we all notice today can actually be traced back to health insurance. We talk about the founding story of Forward, why innovation in healthcare has a negative ROI, being Larry Page's right-hand man at Google, why Adrian doesn't think doctor's offices will exist in the future, but it was still the first product he built at Forward, and how he would redesign the food system to make us healthier. I want to give a quick shout out to Adrian's co-founder, Ilya, for help suggesting questions. And thanks, Adrian, for coming on the show. Now, let's jump in after a quick word from SecureFrame. It's the automated compliance platform built by security experts. Longtime listeners know that thousands of customers like Ramp, AngelList, and Coda trust SecureFrame to get, stay, and automate their compliance with security and privacy frameworks like SOC 2, ISO 2701, HIPAA, GDPR, and much, much more. I'm an investor in SecureFrame, and I highly recommend it to every founder I meet. Check the link in the show notes for a discount and SecureFrame's in-house team of compliance experts and former auditors will get you set up. Thank you, SecureFrame. And now, let's talk to Adrian at Forward. Adrian, how's it going? Thanks for joining today. Not at all. Thanks for having me, man. Glad to be here. I thought we'd kick things off. Can you talk about how the healthcare industry in the U.S. works? Yeah. Oh, God. Or works is a big word. Let's go with not works, right? So there's. I'm going to give you maybe a little like of a history lesson, and I think I'll probably even get this 80% right. So basically... The way that it worked is like back in the day, think back to like World War One, World War Two, right? What happened is we didn't have this like national healthcare system uh, that we have today. Instead, what happened was there were employers. Like you've heard of Kaiser. Kaiser was this like pretty successful entrepreneur, not even having to do with like healthcare or whatever. And they were like creating these local healthcare systems that frankly, like people were just paying monthly into and it was kind of good to go. Or, or rather than paying monthly, often actually paying for services, fee for service. Oh, so this was pre-insurance. Uh, Oh, yeah, yeah. This was way, way, way before insurance. And then something really interesting happened. Basically, in World War II, 
we lost an enormous amount of people in this country, right? So when everybody was kind of coming back and businesses are kind of trying to get going again, they were like, well, shit, we got to compete for talent. And because there's not an enormous amount of talent, what they were doing is they were just kind of hiking up the wages, hiking up the wages and being like, I'll pay you more. No, I'll pay you more. I'll pay you more. And all of a sudden the government was like, "Uh oh, this is going to cause a problem, right? So I don't know, the Fed or Congress, somebody, I don't know, was like, nope, we're putting a salary freeze across the entire country. I know it's kind of wild, right? Yeah, it's like a, it's like a salary cap in sports. Yeah, totally. Exactly. But this was, I think the way it worked was like, whatever salary you're paying today, that is now your max salary. Now, like every every good entrepreneur, every company out there was like, fuck this, I'm going to come up with other ideas. And so what they did is they said, okay, well, what else can we do? Oh, we could start giving these things called benefits or perks. Like, we, hey, you're paying for healthcare, we'll pay for that healthcare. So it's basically like, I'm sideloading comp to the employees, right? Totally fine. Each step of this along the way, totally fine. But here's where it starts to take a turn for the worse. Then the government looks around and like, man, a lot of companies are giving their employees health care. We like our citizens having health care. So then they actually said, hey, that thing that you were doing voluntarily, now let's go ahead and let's make that mandatory. Now it becomes the law that you have to have health care via your employer, as long as the employer is of above a certain size and blah, 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 right? But now you're living in a country where basically your employer, no matter who you are, is probably paying for your health care, right? Like that's the vast majority of health care. Now, in some ways, that kind of sounds awesome, right? Each step along the way, this was a good decision. Sounds great. But now let's take a step back and let's think a little about like the world we've ended up in, right? So I kind of always ask myself, you know, my 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 girlfriend, uh, she comes up to me sometimes. She's like, hey, I didn't get a checkup this year. You know, and I, I don't sit there and go, oh, fuck, Josh, like you're going to die, right? I go... I kind of look at her and I go, nah, you should kind of, you should go, you should go to the doctor, but you know, let's be serious. I'm not sure it makes that much of a difference. And you're like, well, wait a minute. Why have we intuitively kind of learned that like maybe healthcare isn't doing that much? In fact, you kind of see it. Like how many of our friends are out there being like, don't worry, I'm really healthy. I drink organic smoothies and I use method soap. And I'm just sitting here. I'm like, are you fucking kidding me right now? Like organic smoothies are cured to cancer. Method soap is our cure to cancer. Like, like why? What's going on? And it all comes back to this funny thing, which is that your employer is paying for your health care. And you go, well, wait a minute. Why does that even matter? Well, the average tenure of an employee with their employer in the U.S. is shockingly short. It's like call it two, two and a quarter years, right? So if you think about it, if that employer is paying for your health care, what they're focused on is things that are going to happen in that two-year period. So, you know, when I was at Google, as an example, like they came around every year and they're like, time to get your flu shot, Adrian, time to get your flu shot. Like, Jesus, everybody's talking to me about these goddamn flu shots. Like, is there, is there some huge rash of flu deaths going on that I don't know about? Like, no, right? So what the hell are they doing? Well, really what they're saying is, you know what, you get the flu, you're going to miss some work, we're out a couple bucks, maybe you get somebody else sick, like that's causing us problems. But how many people do you know who are dying of cancer or heart disease? Like, I mean, like literally everyone, right? Like these are the biggest killers, the biggest killers in the world. But Google never came up to me. It was like, Adrian, Let's talk about your blood pressure. Let's talk about your cholesterol. Or let's, hey, we're Google, we're advanced. Let's go ahead and sequence your DNA, maybe understand kind of the, the cancers you're going to develop over time or other illnesses. They didn't want to talk about that. Why? Because that's not going to happen in that two-year period. That's 10 years, 20 years, 30 years out, right? And they're like, I'm not going to fucking spend money now to help the next guy, the next employer save some dollars. Like that makes no sense. 
And so what we've done is we've created an entire healthcare system that's focused on keeping you at work, not keeping you alive. It's just too short-term oriented. And you kind of know this, right? Because just ask yourself, like the last, I don't know, three, four, five times you went to the doctor, like what'd you go for, right? Usually it's like, well, I went for my rash. I went for my, my flu. I went for my cold. It's like, okay, awesome. Except you just spent the last like, whatever, 20 minutes you have a doctor talking about a rash instead of talking about the thing that's going to kill you. Like this is insane. In fact, you know this, go up to a doctor, get your checkup. And I promise you nine out of 10 times that they're going to say, they're going to look you in the eyes and say, Turner, you're good to go. You're healthy. And I'm just sitting there. I'm like, what do you mean I'm healthy? Like, what's my probability of death? A hundred percent. Like, what does that even mean to tell me I'm healthy? Like, I'm going to die. Tell me what I can start doing to kind of prevent those issues. And what you realize is the only time they'll deal with those issues is at the last minute, right? So what they're really saying is, it's not that you're healthy. What they're saying is you're not sick enough for me to care yet. But if your shit gets really bad, that's when I'll start focusing on it because it, it starts to enter into that two-year window that the employer pays for and thinks about, right? And that's the problem of healthcare in America. That's like, in some ways, the incentives that we've created have caused all this massive amount of misalignment. How did we get caught in that rut? Like, is there any ways we've messed up or... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, I always start with, you know, when you want to look at like, why did the world not develop in the right way? I always ask myself, what was the incentive? And then when did the technology follow? And tech doesn't have to be Silicon Valley tech, you know, it could be the printing press or the cotton gin, right? I mean, we've had an insane amount of technology over time. And the first thing is, we've created this really odd structure where innovating in healthcare is ROI negative. So let me give you let me give you an example. I was over at Google and I was doing a bunch of the alphabet stuff. I was starting alphabet companies. And I remember at one point I was like, healthcare is a huge problem. Let's go after healthcare. And so I was like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go buy one medical. These are the, the decisions you can make on a moment's notice at Google. And so I met up with their founders, really nice guy, Tom Lee. And I kind of sat with Tom. And I'm like, here's the deal, Tom. I want to buy you and I want to give you billions of dollars. Tell me how you're going to go take over healthcare. I mean, they were like the preeminent techie healthcare company. And Tom said to me, he said this really funny thing. He looks me straight in the eyes. We're like having lunch. And he goes, Adrian, in healthcare, technology investment is ROI negative. And I just, what? Huh? Like I, like, I was confused. I was like, what? Like in fucking gardening, it's ROI positive. How the hell in healthcare, like the biggest industry on this planet, 20% of GDP, one in $5 in this country goes to healthcare. And you're telling me technology doesn't help that? But think about what he was saying. What he was saying was actually incredibly insightful. What he's saying is, look, dude, when I bill, I see a patient and I bill, I bill based off of these things called billing codes, right? And so now you kind of, let's double click on this because you'll quickly realize why this all breaks down. So I had the CEO of Kaiser visit, uh, visit a Ford location a little while ago. And he told, he tried to buy us. He was like all about it. He was like, this is fucking awesome. One of the things he really liked is we have this body scanner. So normally you go to the doctor, they've got a nurse, takes your vitals, all that stuff. And we've got a body scanner. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, dude, Kaiser's a quarter million medical professionals, 40,000 nurses. You have 40,000 nurses. You could have just built a body scanner. Why didn't you do it? But think about it, right? Because when that nurse takes your vitals, they've got a billing code. They bill people you get $7. What's the billing code for the body scanner? There isn't one. And so now what you realize is they would make less money by doing the right thing, right? And that's really, really bad. So we're all stuck in the past. And so the first thing that we said at Forward was like, if you want to go after healthcare, 
You have to align with the actual consumer. So we are direct to consumer. Like you as a member pay us. I know this is like a wild concept in the world of healthcare. But if you look, every time we've done this in history, it's kind of played out. I don't know if you remember, like we all had Blackberries. Blackberries sold to the IT department, maybe the CIO. So you know what it was loaded up on? Security features and enterprise management. Like literally shit I don't care about, right? On the other hand, Steve Jobs was like, I'm just going to build something that the consumer wants. Yeah, they're going to have to pay for it. Your employer's not going to pay for it. So that always sucks. But let's be real. Cost comes down over time. Thank you, technology. But you know what the good news is? We got the fucking iPhone, right? And we all love our damn iPhones, right? We're not stuck using the shitty BlackBerry thing, right? Well, healthcare is in the BlackBerry phase. We're stuck with this like kind of crappy product that was sold to somebody else that none of us want. And so if you shift those incentives like we did at Ford, this is pretty cool. Because now instead of having 100 engineers on my team that are frankly working on new ways to bill you, I've got 100 engineers building the products that you want, like how to lose weight, how to prevent cancer, how to how to make sure that my skin isn't developing, you know, like malignant tumors on, how to make sure that uh, that I'm using the latest genetic sequencing to understand what my risks are, how to make sure that like heart disease is not going to affect me the way it affected my parents, right? Like that's that's what you want. You want tons of people working on that, but that's never going to happen if people don't start to kind of fix the incentives. What do you think the ultimate incentive changer is in healthcare? Like one thing, what would it be? You got to make money by saving lives. That's it. Not make money by doing work, make money by saving lives. I am really, really excited for that world. You know, people look and they kind of underestimate how much the business model fit with the company matters, right? So, you know, in Silicon Valley today, we hate ads. Everybody loves to shit on ads. It's like, well, hold on. Why are we shitting on ads? Well, because Facebook, you know, like they they sold us this mission. We're going to connect the world. I mean, that's a pretty awesome mission. It's like warm fuzzies for all of us. And then they were like, oh, shit, we got to make money. So they insert ads into this little stream. But obviously, the, the best ads, frankly, like are divisive, right? And so all of a sudden, now we're kind of getting to this world where Facebook said they were going to connect us, but actually they're just getting us to fight and separate and whatever. And, and we look and we go, well, ads suck. Fuck you, ads, right? We hate that. But actually, ads... Ads aren't bad. It's just the ads fit with that model, right? So it's like, if I go look at Google, well, Google's mission was to organize and understand the world's information, make it freely accessible. It's a mouthful, but AKA, they want to give you a bunch of info. And you know what? What do you do? You search something, they give you those 10 blue links, but then they throw in some ads. But it turns out those ads are incredibly helpful. In fact, they're more useful than the 10 blue links half the time. You know what I mean? So all of a sudden, you're like, wait a minute, what's Google's kind of virtuous cycle? Google's like, we give you information, we make money. We make money by giving you more information. So obviously, what are we going to do? We're going to take all that money. We're going to give it to more engineers to get you more information. You get more information, we make more money. This is a beautiful loop, right? Google becomes literally the richest person in the world merely by helping democratize information. Now that farmer in Rwanda is sitting there going, fuck yeah, I know how to farm. I've got all the latest technology. I paid nothing for it. Like, this is insanely good. What you realize is like, you have to fit the business model to the problem. And so, you know, having your employer pay for something might make total sense. Your employer should pay for your Amazon Web Services bill. I'm pretty all about that. That makes a hell of a lot of sense. But why the fuck is the employer in the business of paying for my healthcare? I don't let them pay for my, I don't know, my house. I don't let them pay for my clothes. I don't like, like, I, don't, I don't want my employer in the business of, of my life because my incentives misalign. And so really what you want is you want to create a world where whatever company out there is working on healthcare is like the healthier people are, 
the more money I make. You want the apple of that. You want a $3 trillion company that's like, we are making money hand over fist because we're saving lives. But in, today, if you look around the world, that's kind of not what happens, right? You save lives and that's incidental to your business model. In the world of healthcare, your business model is, I did some busy work. It's like, well, okay, it turns out if you're getting paid for doing work, like anybody, like a lawyer, like a consultant, you're not going to finish that work well or fast, I promise you, because you want more problems, not less problems. Yeah, it's services. That's how they get compensated. Right. It's like, why, why does my... Why does my law, I love my law firm. I know they're going to call me and yell at me, but like, why does my law firm not have 50 engineers trying to automate through their, like they've built the same damn document 10,000 times, right? It's like, but I got to pay for this new document. That's an offer letter that we've seen a million times before. Why? Well, because they're paid by the hour, but healthcare is the same thing. You go to your doctor to talk about the flu. Like, do we not think we've seen the flu a billion times before? Are you such a fucking snowflake that your flu is materially different than anybody else's flu? No, just write the damn app that kind of solves the flu once and for all. But what you realize is if they do that, they make less money, right? And so this is the problem. So let's just work on you make money via making people healthier by saving lives. And if you do that, the world's going to accelerate in a really, really positive direction really quickly. So I think we have this kind of like cost disease. You've probably seen that chart where it shows like the graph of prices over time and the ones that keep going up, like education, healthcare, TVs go down. It's insane. Well, again, and so so you have to ask yourself, it's like, why has technology ever hit every other part of society, but not hit the doctor's office? Like, like again, when we when we first launched, we got all this press that was like, oh my God, this is the future, the most advanced healthcare system. The CEO of Kaiser said, this is the most advanced healthcare system I've seen. Now think about why. We built a body scanner. You go into the room. It's pretty awesome. There's this big touch screen on a wall with a model of your body and all the data has been overlaid on top. And this guy's like, I've seen the future. And I'm like, dude, no, you haven't. Go to McDonald's. Literally go to McDonald's. There's touch screens. They don't even want to talk to you anymore. There's like, here's a touch screen with a model of your Big Mac. Your Big Mac. Do you want to add the lettuce? Do you want to add the tomato? You know what we did? We didn't build the future. We just took healthcare from being about 70 years old technology to about 20 years old technology, right? And like this is this is absurd. If we can go ahead and we can fix these incentives now, we can start putting the technology in and we can start accelerating towards a better world. So when I think of McDonald's kiosks. How do you implement that in a doctor's office? So we've talked about the incentives. Now let's pretend you solve the incentives. Now the next thing that you have to do is you have to say, okay, if with the incentives out of the way, what do I kind of want healthcare to look like? What's the product kind of look like? And we've got a fundamental issue in healthcare today, which is that healthcare is based fundamentally on people. It's based on doctors, right? So let's pretend I walked up to you and I said, you know what, Turner, I want to get smartphones to the whole planet. I want to get phones to billions of people, to the middle of India, the middle of Rwanda, to billions of people. That sounds awesome. Yeah, it sounds awesome. But you're also going to say, Adrian, you're late to the game. I think it's kind of already <laughs> happened, right? True. On the other hand, let's say I want to get I want to get healthcare to the whole planet, right? I want to get doctors to billions of people, the middle of India, middle of Rwanda, to everyone. I truly want to democratize healthcare once and for all. You're going to say, Adrian, where the hell are you going to get all these doctors? And kind of honestly, who's going to pay for them, right? And so what you quickly realize is, you kind of intuitively know that technology scales in a way that humans don't. Or another way to say it is hardware and software scales in a way that doctors don't. So we had this kind of key insight at Forward a while ago, which is like, look, at some point what you realize is healthcare should be a product, not a service. We should just take every single thing that you know doctors and nurses are doing and just migrate it over to hardware and software. Because if you do that, you can scale healthcare up to the entire planet, 
Or maybe even more excitingly, now you can let the algorithms, you can let the AI say, hey, we can actually start to drive healthcare. And that's the world that we all know we want to get to, right? So then you said, okay, Adrian, but how the hell do you do that? Well, when you want to kind of boil the ocean, you got to start somewhere, right? It's an easy thing to say healthcare should be a product, not a service. It's a total fucking nightmare to go after it. You start by building a high-tech doctor's office like we did. We built one in San Francisco. It's done pretty well. We're live in about order of about 25 cities all across the country now. But immediately you go, but hold on, Adrian, you told me you want to get healthcare to billions of people. You told me you want to buy AI to healthcare. Like, like, come on, man, like your high tech doctor's office isn't going to do that. But think about what we're doing, right? Every day we're watching what happens inside of those clinics and we're trying to learn from it. Do you have sensors, cameras? How do you do that? Exactly. So now you get where we're going, right? So if you come in, you sit in the exam chair and you talk to your doctor about the flu, I immediately go, wait a minute, why'd you even come in? Let's just build that into the mobile app. Next guy sits in the chair, talks to his doctor about skin issues. We build a skin scanner. Next guy talks to his doctor about heart issues. I build a body scanner. And slowly but surely, what you see we're doing is we're just migrating every single thing from kind of doctor and nurse to hardware and software until what you realize is that the limit we're not building doctor's offices. We're only building hardware and software. In fact, if I'm going to be honest, we don't even believe a doctor's office should exist. We think that's a thing of the past, right? So where you're trying to go is you're trying to say, what is the fastest way that I can build the product that meets the needs of every single part of healthcare? You start simple. You start small. Hey, let's do some primary care. Let's do some... Then you kind of work your way out from there. Hey, let's do a little, uh, a little dermatology. Let's do maybe a little cardiology. But you're going to keep going until one day you're doing open heart surgery and delivering babies, right? But you're doing it with hardware and software, not humans. Now, you've kind of seen this story play out before. I don't know if you remember, but a long time ago, back when you and I were far, far, far younger, and I'm going to date myself, this product came out called the iPhone V1. You know, I remember sit, like standing in line. Okay, I'll admit I, I spent the night, but whatever. So I got this iPhone and I was super jazzed about it. And I was like, this thing is the future. And it had seven apps. It was like the most disappointing thing you've ever seen in your yeah. No app store. It didn't work with any old devices. It didn't like it was literally seven apps. Did it have internet? Did it have 3G? It had Safari. Yeah. And then, you know what? Safari almost worked. You know, it was like it was like a, the good old college try that you were like loading a full web page on your foreign screen. Like the product was very good when it launched. But it didn't do very much. But but what you did is the reason guys like you and I we were all jazzed about it, is we saw where it was going, right? We saw those seven icons and we knew that one day it would be a million icons, right? We saw that it had it had a camera and we knew one day that they'd also add GPS and 5G and LiDAR. It's like, you can kind of see where that's going, right? And so what they did is they said, look, it's going to be a long, hard road. I don't know if you remember this, but like when the iPhone first launched, it got tons of bad press. They called it the walled garden. They were like, but it doesn't work with my, my Sony Walkman, my Garmin GPS unit, my Nikon camera. But think about why Apple's like, we're not going to work with those. Because the second they connected up to those, there wouldn't be an incentive to migrate the world over. So instead they said, you know what? We're going we're gonna to take our time. We're going to open this thing called the App Store. And when they did, you got Nikon, you got Spotify, you got Google Maps, and everybody migrated over. Now, not everything's migrated over. I still have car keys, though that's leaving right now. I still have house keys, that's leaving. I still have a driver's license, that's leaving. They're in year, I don't know, 16, 17, whatever it happens to be now. And they're like, look, 
oh, two decades, we're going to get there. I promise you're not going to carry shit anymore. And it's like, honestly, they're pretty damn close, right? Like they're making progress. And so in healthcare, you kind of got to do the same. You got to play the long game. You start by saying, what is the new model, this product-centric world, this, this healthcare as a product that people can access whenever they want, healthcare that looks like every other piece of technology in your life. And then you say, great, now let's start adding functionality. Yeah, we don't do open-heart surgery yet at Ford. But give us time. One day we will. May not be tomorrow, maybe 20 years from now, but whatever. It's taken Apple 20 years too, right? And like that's kind of the world that we're marching towards, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does make sense. And the thing that doesn't make sense is you said doctor's offices shouldn't exist, but that was the first product that you started with, essentially. How did you decide how to enter, like how to attack the market? So so it's a very kind of Tesla, uh, Tesla sort of example. Remember Tesla was like, we want to build, we want to build electric cars. And then I don't know if you remember this, but in their first car, and I might butcher some of this, but like they bought the chassis, they bought the transmission. I think they even bought the battery. I could be wrong on that. But but the point is like they didn't actually build the car. But why did they do that? Well, you kind of need an end-to-end functioning system, in their case automotive, in our case healthcare, to be able to learn how to do it right. Like you can't go into a lab and say, give me 20 years and I'm going to come out tomorrow and ta-da, here's my product. And that's the first time that it you know meets an actual customer. You have to be learning every single day. So believe it or not, when we started the company, we got a warehouse in Soma, in the CD part of Soma, which in fairness is all of Soma, but we got a warehouse there and it was pretty cool. In the first 90 days of starting the company, we actually stood up a very traditional clinic, but it was a little different in that it was made of like foam core and two by fours. It was a movie set. There was literally no roof. You could just stand on the uh, upper floor of the warehouse and look straight down into it. But what we did is we just started kind of bringing people in every single day, real live patients providing real life care with real life doctors, et cetera. And what it allowed us to do is allowed us to learn. So every day after an appointment, we'd be like, ah, everything from move the walls around to build this piece of software, to build this piece of hardware, you name it, we did it. And frankly, that's what we've been doing ever since. Every single day for the last God knows how many years, all I've been doing now is saying, how can I take what the current system that we have is and how can I make it just a tiny bit better, a tiny bit better? If you look at Tesla, that's been the exact same thing. They started by saying, here's a normal car with its hodgepodge together from some parts, then replace this piece, then replace this piece. And now, you know, they've gone all the way to, we've built our own air conditioning system. We've innovated on the the damn door locks. And that's where you want to go over time, right? You just want to start replacing every single piece until you've migrated it to the new Mm -hmm. world. Yeah, and Tesla's an interesting example where I think it was two quarters ago in one of the investor days, Elon showed a chart and it was like operating margins over time and Tesla just kept marching up and all the other automakers were kind of all over, kind of going down. Totally, it's, totally. it's not intuitive at first, but it, and it takes a very long time. I agree. And so basically what happens if you think about it is, and this is you know the disadvantage of a company like Ford, right? Very similar to Tesla. I don't know if you remember, I want to say year 15 or 16 of Tesla. They were the most shorted company in the entire planet. I'm going to butcher some of these numbers, but I'll try and get them right. They were burning $1.3 billion a year, which let's be real, that's some that's some real money. That's impressive. Yeah. That's that's Adam Newman style money. You know, it's like like very few people could burn that amount. But if you think about it, the like you and I are sitting here going, yeah, but of course, but they were producing an enormous amount of cars. But no, I think it was like 
up till year 14, the cumulative amount of cars they produced was like 100,000 cars. I mean, dude, that, like that's what Toyota does in the next, like, I don't know, week, right? Like, yeah, overnight. And so, so all of Wall Street's like shorting the company, obviously. But Elon's sitting there and he's like, well, you guys are playing checkers while I'm playing chess. Because he's sitting there and like, yeah, but I've got autopilot. I've got automated factories. I've got lithium batteries. I've got lithium mines. I've got superchargers, blah, blah, blah. And when I put all this together, I'm going to get the Model 3. And there's a really key insight here, which is he knew and understood from a very early point in Tesla's life that the only thing that matters is can you get car manufacturing to go exponential? Because if you can get it to go exponential, nothing else will ever matter. I mean, he took 17 years to even launch the Model 3. You know what I mean? But nobody looks back and goes, ah, Tesla, you took too long. They go, who the fuck cares? You're like one of the world's largest, most important companies, right? We take the very same stance for healthcare. If you go look today, if you look at the, literally the, the most mature healthcare systems out there, Kaiser's about 75 years old, and they've got, what, about 11, maybe 12 million users. If Geyser was a tech company, you would have never heard of it and you wouldn't have the app on your phone, right? Like in the world of tech, we think about things that can go exponential. Give Kaiser another 6.3 billion years and maybe they'll go exponential. But, you know, it turns out I'm impatient. I'd like that to happen in the next, I don't know, million years, right? So what you realize is like there is no strategy for these companies that are reliant on doctors to ever be able to actually serve the whole planet. You need millions of doctors. In fact, you need more than millions of doctors that's the crazy part, right? And so now what you realize is you need some other strategy. And so at Ford, we take a very similar stance to Tesla. And by that, what I mean is we just say, look, it's a bimodal. It's a binary. At some point, healthcare is going to go exponential or it's not going to go exponential. If we can make it go exponential, it will be game over, right? There will be a product-based healthcare system. It will democratize healthcare for the whole planet. You'll start to see life expectancy truly try to like honestly skyrocket, which is super, super exciting. But you need to do an insane amount of upfront work to get it to go exponential, right? And that's what you saw with Tesla, again, in their, in their life about 17 years. And this is what you see with us. Now, the good news for us is we're moving a hell of a lot faster than them. And the bad news for us is we're probably a slightly more regulated industry with a hell of a lot more thorns in our side, et cetera. So there's pros and cons here, but, but that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to make healthcare go exponential once and for all. So what does that mean? Is that life expectancy, like quality of outcomes? So you know what's kind of cool? Once, once an industry goes exponential, this is the beauty of technology. This is why I'm in the field of technology. So usually in most industries, basically you're pulling against. When one thing gets better, everything else gets worse. In the world of healthcare, they call this the iron triangle of healthcare. And it's cost, quality, and access are the three dimensions of the triangle. And they always say, okay, choose two. Pick any two and we'll screw the third one for you. Right. And I'm not going to lie. I don't know who came up with this. I think it was the guy who came up with Medicare. But frankly, I'm not the expert on this. But I looked at this and my first thought was like, bullshit. I just don't buy it. This is stupid. Right. <laughs> and and even though to them, this is like this is the the gold standard. Everyone believes that they teach it in school. And this is why I hate the, the idea of going to school for healthcare. is like you learn the past, not learn the future. In technology, we change dimensions all the time and we change all the dimensions all at once. That's kind of almost the definition of technology. We rewrite the equation, right? So it's like, well, did did electric batteries make us greener? Yeah. Did they make us safer? Yeah. Did they give us more range? Yeah. 
holy shit, why do I not want an electric battery in my car, right? It's like it wins on everything. So now let's come back to healthcare. Well, what's going to happen when healthcare is a product, not a service? Well, first off, it just turns out that healthcare is kind of an infrastructure problem, right? If I truly want to put healthcare on every single street corner, got to be a piece of hardware. I'm not going to put a doctor on every street corner. I don't even know what that would look like. But we've been able to get billions and billions of phones. I mean, I think there's 2.5 billion Androids and almost 2 billion iPhones out there in people's pockets right now. Like, that's insane, right? Why? Because it's a manufacturing problem. Manufacturing problem is a hardware problem. Okay, cool. So now you realize like we can literally just increase accessibility wildly. Now let's talk cost. If I look at labor in healthcare, what is the cost of healthcare today? It's about 20% of GDP. It's like whenever people describe it as GDP, it sounds like this foreign concept. So let me make it really easy. Every time you get a paycheck, somebody takes 20% of your goddamn paycheck and just puts it to the healthcare industry. If that doesn't piss you off, I don't know what will, but it gets worse. It's increasing in cost every single year. Why? Because the cost of labor goes up. We all want to live better and better lives. So, of course, the cost of labor goes up. I'm not faulting those people, but I am saying that's not affordable. So, it's increasing at 7% year over year. Again, doesn't sound like much. 7%, that's reasonable. Well, you know what the doubling period on 7% is? It's 11 years. So, it means roughly a decade from now, it's going to be 40% of your paycheck. Don't ask what it is a decade after that because you don't have that much paycheck to go through, right? Now, all of a sudden, you realize if we're based on labor, the cost is going to just continue to skyrocket in an unreasonable way. But if I make it based on hardware and software, what happens? I mean, we know what happens. My first iPhone was, I don't know, 800 bucks. Now, in the middle of India, you can buy a smartphone for like 20 bucks. It's thanks to this cool thing called Moore's Law. It's a decreasing logarithmic curve. Fancy way of saying it's going to become dirt cheap. Just give it a little time. And that's what you want. You want healthcare that is just dirt cheap. You want healthcare that is all around you. But then you asked a different question. You said, well, are we all just going to live longer? Well, let's just take a step back and let's just think a little about why we aren't living I don't know, to 200, to 500, to 1,000. I know this kind of sound like fanciful, ridiculous concepts, but let's just kind of look how other industries have developed over time. So one of the things I like doing is just kind of maintaining perspective. And I like going all the way back as far as kind of written history will give us. And I like going back to the Bronze Age. This is like about 5,500 years ago. Before we look at healthcare, let's instead look at, at transportation, right? It's an easier one. We're pretty used to it. So about 5,500 years ago, transportation was pretty basic. It was called your two little feet. Um, you didn't have shoes. You didn't have anything. Honestly, you'd probably walk about five, maybe 10 miles a day if you were lucky. We did that for roughly about one or 2,000 years. Then we were pretty intelligent and we developed these things called sandals. Um, sandals got us about double that number. So if you were doing five, now you're doing 10. If you're doing 10, maybe you could get up to 20 in a good day. Okay, cool. But that wasn't very much. We did that for about 1,000 years. And then we tamed horses. We tamed wild horses. They did. I want to be clear. I still don't know how to ride a horse, but whatever. They tamed wild horses. They got up to maybe 50, 100 miles. So all of a sudden, you see see how this curve is starting to inflect. We did that for another thousand years. And then just in the last few hundred years, dude, it's taken off like a rocket ship, no pun intended. But here's what happened. We developed these things called river boats. Now we could go hundreds and hundreds. Then we developed things like trains, planes, automobiles. I mean, now we're up into the thousands. I mean, we could literally cross countries. We could basically get mostly around the planet. Then NASA sat there and they're like, uh-uh, we got this. And NASA was like, we're going to the moon, literally the moon, 125 
thousand miles away. And of course, SpaceX is sitting there and they're like, hold my beer. And they're trying to go to 125 million miles away. They're trying to go to Mars this decade. So literally, we went from five miles to 125 million miles away. I mean, it's like 25 million X, right? So it's like, holy shit. Now, let's look at life expectancy. Let's say you were born in the Bronze Age. Okay, start with the bad news. You had roughly 15 to 20% probability of death just in infancy. Okay, that kind of sucks. That's not good. But it also means you had a, I don't know, 20, uh, 75 to 80% probability of survival. So now you have to ask yourself, if you're in that 80%, uh, you know, how long did you live? And you know what's really fascinating? They lived on average to about 42 years old. So now you ask yourself, okay, what, what's today? And today, about 72 years old. So what you're telling me is that in 5,500 years, we didn't even double the damn number? Like, what the hell is going on? Like, where's my 25 million X? Where's my rockets? Where's my spaceships, right? And so if I walk around in the, in the you know, uh, 2,000 years ago, in the, in the great Roman Empire, and I say, actually, I'm going to go visit my friend on Mars, I sound like an idiot. But do you think that if I said that in 50 years or in 100 years that I would sound like an idiot? Probably not. It's probably going to be a reasonable thing. The same way if you walk up to one of your friends right now and say, hey, I'm going to Italy for a week, they don't look at you like you're batshit crazy. But you know what's really funny? People do look at you like you're batshit crazy if you say, I want to live to 200 or I want to live to 300. But now you start asking yourself, but why? Why was transportation able to take off, this time pun intended, but healthcare wasn't able to take off? And what you realize is that in the last few hundred years, when transportation truly, truly had its, its like inflection and its moment, you know what we did? We had really good tools. The field of, of hardware took off. The field of mechanical engineering took off. We had the industrial revolution. And that's what we need in the world of healthcare. We need a way to innovate incredibly rapidly. Let me use an analogy. Obviously, when the iPhone came out, uh, we had this like mobile computing revolution. Like overnight, we got millions and millions of apps. Now, now why? Well, it's because this 22-year-old at Stanford named Kevin Systrom could sit around, have an idea, push it out to the world 12 hours later. And so what you realize is the rate of innovation goes through the roof, Right. But actually, what's more interesting than Kevin Systrom pushing out his photo sharing idea was that a thousand people pushed out their photo sharing ideas. His was the right one. His was the one that 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 won. But really, you can almost think of it as Apple had created in the world of healthcare, we would call this clinical trials platform, a way that you could try your ideas and get them out. So now you have to ask yourself, if you want healthcare to take off in the same way, Where's that incredibly large clinical trials platform? How can I go from having an idea about, I don't know, preventing breast cancer, doing open heart surgery, and get it out to the world in 12 hours? Now, that sounds scary, but it sounds scary because we haven't built those tools, right? We can build those tools. The same way we built an operating system for your phone, we can build an operating system for healthcare. Once healthcare is a hardware and software problem, now you start thinking of it the same way you think of every part of tech. We're going to create a hardware and software platform. We're going to create an operating system. We're going to allow the world to build on top of it. And we're just going to measure what works. And if you come back to that notion of incentives, we've already solved in some ways the most important problem. You come to this platform and if you save lives, you make money. Dear God, this is awesome. The people who save more lives are going to make more money. They're going to take every dollar they make. They're going to put it into 
more and more engineers that are working on saving lives in more and more ways. And this is the world that you want. And if we can get this to happen at incredibly rapid rates, then what you quickly realize is we can start to inflect healthcare the same way transportation started to inflect or the same way the mobile computing revolution started to inflect. So when you asked at the beginning, and I know I, I apologize for giving an incredibly long-winded answer, but when you asked at the beginning and you said, in which way does it go exponential? My perhaps obnoxious answer is all the ways. From the rate of innovation to the cost, to the accessibility, to the amount of people involved in building your healthcare product to be the world's best product, all you really want is an exponential healthcare system. And if you can get it, everything's going to change. How did you figure out this was the right approach? Like, do you remember the moment that you kind of realized what was wrong? It's a good question. So I'm not a healthcare guy. I'm sure there's some pros and I'm sure there's some cons to that. But I think in my case, it's likely mostly pros, right? People come up to me the all the time. I, I, I had this funny experience the other day. I was on a panel with a couple other like, you know, healthcare system CEOs, which I'll be honest, I felt like that. I felt like the odd duck. And this girl on my team, you know, really smart girl, fresh out of college. She's like prepping me for it. And she's like, okay, this one does Medicare. This one does Medicaid. And I pause her and I just say, oh, what's the difference between Medicare and Medicaid? And she looks at me and she like turns blanche white and she goes, what are you talking about? You run a national healthcare system and you don't know what Medicare and Medicaid are. And I look at her and I'm like, that's like going up to Larry Page and saying, what do you mean you don't know about the Dewey Decimal System? It's like, I'm not trying to rebuild the library. I'm trying to build Google, right? Well, I'm not trying to rebuild the existing healthcare system. I'm trying to build something new. And so most people, when they say, hey, I want to enter into an industry, what they do is they go and they research the hell out of that industry. And I didn't, uh, honestly. I'm, I'm a patient. I've been to a doctor before. And that was kind of all I really needed to know. I know roughly kind of the concepts of, you know, how the body works. And again, I was like, I kind of got a general sense. Instead, I went towards kind of a, a first principles approach, right? And I said, if you were to design healthcare today from the ground up, what would it look like? What was pretty fascinating is we kind of created the model of Ford. And we went out and we went to fundraise and we, you know, we went out and we pitched the who's who, you know, all these guys, right? Like, so what, what was that like? Well, how did you, how did you set all those up? Cause people want to hear that. We got our asses handed to us in our first round. This is pretty funny. So we went up to Eric Schmidt. We went up to Mark Benioff. We went up to Peter Thiel, Vinod Kosla. I mean, you name it, like the literally Silicon Valley luminary. And were you still working at Alphabet, Google. And I had left, and I and I I funded our first uh, our first round myself, so it was technically our second round. And I walked up to these guys, and I was like, you know, hey, you know, invest in Ford. And I give them the that, that was the pitch. And, yeah, and and every single one of them just looks and goes, yeah, this isn't going to work. What did they think was not going to work? Oh, I have like a list of maybe fifteen objections. It was like. Won't pay for healthcare. You can't get doctors to change how they practice. You can't operate in a regulated system. You can't insert technology in the most intimate moments of people's lives. On and on and on and on. Yeah, those are fair. Well, because at that point in time, nobody had done it, right? But you know, all it takes is one, as it turns out. And so, what was kind of we got pretty lucky. These folks, I knew them well, and and they were like, we're mostly based off your resume, we're going to give you money anyway, and then you'll just go pivot. But I wrote all those things down, and I systematically de-risked them. Now, I disagreed with them. You know, just take something really simple. You can't get doctors to change how they practice. Why? You can get every other person on, on this planet to like adopt something new, but doctors are some magical like dragon species. Like, no, this is absurd, right? I would argue that doctors have adapted new technology. They give people drugs. They've got 
x-rays they've got all the stuff or or, or my favorite was oh consumers don't pay for healthcare. like what are you fucking talking about we're all walking around wearing nike fitbit lululemon we're we're drinking organic smoothies if you don't believe they pay for healthcare, walk into whole foods where everything's four times the price that it should be we all love paying for our health what the second i insert a doctor into the equation consumers hate it all of a sudden no it's because the product of healthcare sucks you wait up for that 5 a.m you know apple watch drop from apple so you can get first in line because it's cool you know nobody wakes up early in the morning for Kaiser's latest drop. Can you imagine if your stocking stuffer this year was a Kaiser gift card? You'd be like, what the fuck? Like, thanks, mom, you know? And so what I realized is like, actually all these things are adages by analogy, right? Like, like people are reasoning because they haven't seen it before and they're doing their kind of pattern recognition. And I was just reasoning from first principles and said, no, I think these things can work. Now, interestingly, since Ford got funded, now you've got tons of consumer-based healthcare systems. This is awesome. I love this, right? And I think as we, as we show more and more that actually healthcare can be based on products, not services, I think you're going to see more and more of that world too. You already see the beginnings of it in a bunch of narrow sectors. My aura ring doesn't connect up to a doctor. They said, we're going to build the product. But again, without the kind of core operating system that everybody can plug into, without that digital doctor, it's hard for these things to succeed. But I think that's the way the world is going to work. So we tend to spend most of our time asking ourselves, what does the consumer want and need, not ask ourselves, how does the industry work? In fact, we have almost nobody at Ford who has healthcare industry experience. We have healthcare practitioners, but we don't really have people who are like, you know, hey, I worked at, I don't know, Aetna for five years. And like, we just don't really do that. The same way Google probably doesn't have people that worked at the Library of Congress or, mm. or whatnot, you know? Yeah, it makes sense. One comment, Ilya told me to, to ask you this or to bring this up. I saw a stat that about 15% of all VC funding essentially went to health insurance. Well, you can probably you can probably do the math pretty simply, right? So if yeah. you know that healthcare is, and I'm I'm just doing a, a, a quick model, but if you know that healthcare is almost 20% of GDP, I want to say it's like 19 or somewhere around there. And you know that companies are, you know, first off, the vast majority of GDP minus, you know, government and NGOs, like what you quickly realize is that, yeah, it's got to be, it's got to be the vast majority of that amount of money, right? But take a step back, ask yourself, like coming back to this incentives being so fucked up, like why is it that healthcare is so expensive? Let's ask ourselves from two different dimensions. The first thing let's ask ourselves is from the market's perspective. So I have an AT&T phone, right? Uh, an AT&T plan. Let's pretend AT&T calls me next week and says, we're doubling your price. What do I do? Well, I moved to Verizon, right? And so there's, there's natural competition, right? Except that in the world of healthcare, you have no ability to negotiate. They're taking the money out of your paycheck, Turner, every month, that 20%. And yet you don't have a choice. You just have to go with whatever it is. Like, just think about it this way, right? Let's pretend Uber was one of your options. So you open up your Uber app and I got Uber X to the, to the hospital. Well, that's 10 bucks. Uber Black to the hospital, that's 20 bucks. Uber SUV, that's 30 bucks. And then Uber Ambulance. Yeah, they have an option, don't they? They have Uber yeah, Health. I think they have an ambulance, but what would it cost? It would cost like $4,000, right? Like why, right? Is the difference between $50 and $4,000 like the cost of an ambulance? No, an ambulance doesn't cost that much. I, like half these SUVs cost roughly about the same amount, right? Is the driver of the ambulance making like 10X more than the driver of the SUV? No, sadly, they're making roughly about the same amount. And, you know, oh, on the way, did you happen to use thousands of dollars of equipment and and, and consumables? No. Like, again, use some cotton swabs and maybe a couple bills, right? And so, so what you quickly realize at the end of the day is 
like why are ambulance fees so high? Because you can't negotiate them because there's no options. And so they're just going to keep racking that price up. In fact, it gets worse. Insurance companies are regulated in that they are regulated to a percentage of profit. And what that means is for every dollar that comes in, they have to have a medical loss ratio of blah. They can only make whatever, 20% profit. Well, if you can only make 20% profit on every dollar and you want to grow your business, you know what you do? You run more dollars through your business. Yeah, you cannot improve your margins. You just must grow. That's the only way. All they do is look for new costs that they can run through the system every single day. Like this is this is absurd. Healthcare does not need to cost this amount. Healthcare can be super damn cheap if we just build it right. Yeah, going back to the GDP comments, I was looking the other day, I think there's a, a couple health insurers. I think United Health is like 400 billion in revenue or something. Like some of these numbers that they're doing, I forget if it's Aetna or Cigna, but they're. I think it's over a trillion in in revenue. That might be the wrong number, but if you stack some of those together and you say, you know, U.S. GDP is 22 trillion or something, I don't know what the number is, and you're suddenly getting into like, wow, these health insurers, the premiums are a significant chunk of GDP. And to your point, like the only way to to get more money is you have to just stack more costs through. Yeah. Well, you remember you remember the whole like what the music industry went through where they called it. Um, analog dollars to digital dimes. No, I don't remember that. Yeah, this is like when the Napsters and Spotify's and all those things came out, they were like, hey, we used to sell CDs for 20 bucks and now we sell like an MP3 for, you know. 99 cents or whatever, yeah. And I think healthcare needs to go through the same thing. I think that would actually be really good, right? We're, we're analog in healthcare. We have not created in the world of healthcare an exponential healthcare system. We haven't created a product-based healthcare system. We haven't created a consumer-based healthcare system. And once you do all those things, what you realize is you're going to take things today that cost thousands and thousands of dollars and you're going to crush them down to pennies on the dollar. And I think that's going to be incredibly positive for humanity. And so do you think that will actually make either revenue or profitability, I don't know which one, but it will make, it will decrease profits across the industry? Like, how will that play out? That sounds disastrous. Actually, what's kind of fascinating is it should increase profits, but it should do it in a way that causes each individual to have to pay less, right? So if you kind of look, once you move to a world of digital, you get more scale. The way you make money is by a scale. In the services world, the way you make money is by charging a lot to each person, right? Google. Google, like all of us feel like we pay Google nothing, basically, right? Yet Google somehow is a, I don't know, two, three trillion dollar company, right? Well, why? Well, they make small amounts of money, but they make small amounts of money across large amounts of people. Mm-hmm. Healthcare, again, Kaiser only has 11 or 12 million users and they're, you know, worth hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars, right? Because they're taking a lot of money from each one of those individuals, sometimes 50, sometimes 100, sometimes $200,000, right? What you want to do is you want to shift the model to where they can still become big companies. You want big companies because if you do, it means they're pouring billions of dollars into research, billions of dollars into making your life better and helping you live longer. So I want, I want the Google of healthcare. I want the Apple of healthcare, but I want the product to be as free as as the Google of healthcare would be. Jumping back a little bit, we kind of maybe jumped sideways forward. I don't know what we jumped, but going back on the fundraising stuff, you got the first round. Who did you convince to give you that first big check? Well, we were pretty lucky. In our seed round, we took, I don't know, maybe 50 or 60 uh, kind of angels, many of whom I'm sure you know, from the Ashton Kutchers, the Josh Kushners, the Mark Benioffs, the Eric Schmitz. I mean, you name it. We took a bunch of these folks. And the key kind of insight 
I think was a few things. First off, I think they were like, look, you've got a pretty solid team. Um, that's not just my way of patting myself on the back. I mean, we have, we've got a bunch of, uh, a bunch of good people here, but I think the second thing they recognized pretty well, and this is probably why they're all at the top of their game is they said, look, we haven't seen it done before, but we know it needs to be done. And we know there is some formula in there. And so I'll be honest, a lot of them were like, I don't think your formula is the right formula, but you know what, we're going to give you a chance to go learn. And I've been really lucky in that basically almost every name I just uh, I just mentioned has actually continued to back us in every single round since or many rounds since because it turns out that, you know, maybe our path is a reasonable path. I don't think we've proven every part of it by any stretch of the imagination, but I think we've proven at this point that our thesis can be accomplished. You know, hopefully we're the ones to accomplish it. But honestly, if the, the worst thing that we do in this company is, you know, loosen the ketchup bottle for the next guy, show the next on entrepreneur, how he or she may do it, that would be totally reasonable for me. I think I saw too, The weekend was an investor. It sounds like it was an interesting story how he got involved. What happened there? Uh, well, I'm not cool enough to be friends with The weekend personally prior to this. I wish I hung in those circles, but you know, I'm, I'm much more a nerd that sits at my computer most of the time. So his name's Abel, Abel Tesfaya. And Abel was walking along in the Century City Mall in LA and just kind of saw forward, walked in. And, you know, we've got kind of, you know, uh, membership advisors that give you a tour. And he was like, this is so cool. So he started texting a bunch of his friends. And I forget who it was, might've been Ashton Kutcher or somebody who I know pretty well was like, just put me on a text. And it was like, Adrian, meet the weekend, the weekend, meet Adrian. And I did not understand this text because I literally had no clue who the weekend was. Oh, you didn't even know. Oh, no, 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 no. Um, and so I'm sitting there and I'm like, is Ashton telling me that he's made weekend plans for me? Like, what exactly is going on? And I was like standing right next to my girlfriend and she goes, no, you idiot, you know? And she starts to explain. And I spent some time with him. He's a really, really nice guy. Super down to earth, really a great person. I remember in my first conversation, I was like, why don't we like meet up next week? You know, I'll be, I don't know, in LA or something like that. He's like, no, I'm, I'm actually a little busy that day. I'm like, oh yeah, what do you got going on? He's like... I'm doing this uh, halftime show somewhere. And it was when he was doing the Super Bowl. And I was like, okay, yeah, that's it's a good reason not to meet up with me on that day. You're a little preoccupied. But anyway, he's a, he's a nice guy. Are there certain KPIs in that you think about just like measuring the success of the company? Is it like lives touched or like? Yeah, totally. So when you look at a business, unfortunately, capitalism doesn't care about your mission. So we always start by asking, what does capitalism care about? And capitalism, you know, your standard PL. Now we're a subscription business. We charge monthly. So at the end of the day, we start with growth, retention, and economics. Let me kind of explain that. If you're Netflix, if you're Spotify, if you're any subscription business, what do you care about? You care about getting customers, keeping customers, and doing it profitably. How do you measure each of those? Growth, retention, economics, right? And so what we do is we run our company on a quarterly basis or on a sprint cycle basis. We run the company off those metrics. But the reality is that you could easily hit those metrics and have no progression towards your future goals, your long-term goals. So what we do is we separately have a bunch of metrics that we monitor that basically ensure that we're marching towards our long-term mission. And the way that we do this is it's very simple. There's no secret strategy. There's no hidden thing. I'm going to just give it to you right now. It's really simple. All we do is we do a thought experiment. We just ask ourselves, whatever dimension we want to understand, we take it to the limit. So let's look at healthcare. Start with one dimension, cost. Should healthcare at the limit, means 100 years ago from now, 1,000 uh, years from now, should healthcare cost $1 per person or $1 billion per person? Healthcare should cost $1 per person. Okay, so you know what we're going to do? We're going to make sure every single day that we are marching that number closer and closer to $1. Okay, next question. Should healthcare be in one place in a city or on 
every damn street corner all around us. Well, every damn street corner all around us. So every day we are making sure that we are marching in that direction, that we are becoming more and more ubiquitous in society. Okay, the next thing. Should the world's best healthcare, should that use one piece of your health data or all the data that it can get its hands on? All the data that it can... Okay, so every day we're saying, how do we incorporate more and more and more data? Okay, should healthcare be so complex to practice that our doctors, our practitioners need a hundred years of schooling, or should the tools be so damn awesome that you need one day of schooling to uh, to become a healthcare practitioner? Well, one day. So every day we are making sure that our tools are getting easier and easier and easier so that we can lower the bar of training or requirements to be able to use our tools. And now you see what we do. We just walk through all of these dimensions, and I can give you another 25 dimensions. But all we do is we ask the obvious questions and we say, well, are we headed in that direction? We monitor those metrics. And if we are, we will eventually get to healthcare for a billion people at a ridiculously low cost. It's all around us, and it's going to be an awesome world. And if we don't, if we don't monitor those metrics, we will not make that progress. So that's how we do it. You're using fewer resources to deliver more care, less costs, more revenue. Essentially, that's what that leads to, if I'm understanding correct. You you got exactly that. What we're trying to do is we're trying to turn healthcare into a problem that looks very similar to every other piece of technology that you've ever worked on and ever built. And once you do that, once you just change the the the, the infrastructure, right, the scaffolding that it sits on from a bunch of people running around to a bunch of hardware and software, then all of a sudden you get to play the game that you and I are used to very, very well. You said something once I thought was really interesting. You said we should redesign the food system. What does that even mean? How do you do that? So in my prior job, uh, I'll give a little context. I was really lucky. I had I had kind of a dream job. I was Larry Page's right-hand man when he was still uh, kind of running Google. And you know, I was involved in kind of a bunch of the alphabet stuff. And part of what I did was... My job was to kind of look at new sectors and say, how would we go, you know, change these sectors? How could we improve them for the better and solve large global problems? And one of the things that I spent some time looking at was food. And, you know, food, I'm going to take an incredibly contrarian view to many, many people. So I'm sure I'm going to piss off a lot of people on this call. I apologize in advance. But we today, we have this notion of we want organic food, we want local food, we want real food, like even the phrase real food. I had lunch yesterday from a place called proper food. And so what we've basically said is that we want food with less and less and less technology applied to it. Mm. Now, maybe I'm a techno-optimist, but when in any part of society and humanity has betting against technology been a good idea? Like this just seems insane to me. If you look back to, I want to say it was like the 50s or the 60s, we started to really innovate on food for just a hot minute. We got things like Jello. Like what the fuck is Jello? Like it doesn't look like anything. It's just like this weird. Ma- now, okay. Now that's let's call Jello a V1 concept. But the thing that was incredibly interesting to me about what we were doing back then and we're, I think, not doing enough of now is we were trying to separate out multiple concerns. One concern is your experience, which means taste, smell, texture, color. And when you think of Jell-O, that's what you kind of think of, right? It's like this weird jiggly thing that's, I don't know, neon orange or something. It's like weirdly weird, right? But it showed that we had the ability to innovate on that. And what we need to do is we need to innovate on that separately than we innovate on the nutrition. In other words, the question that I always ask people, so I love chocolate. It's hard to get me to not eat chocolate. I'm a big chocolate fan. But I know that chocolate's not great for me. And so the question that I ask is, 
why do we not have kale that tastes like chocolate? Or why do we not have chocolate with the nutrition of kale? And the reason that we don't have this is because in food, we're incredibly shy or reticent about trying to truly constitute food from brand new molecules, right? Like, Interestingly, everybody says, I only want natural food. I only want organic food. And then they go pop an Advil in their mouth. And I'm like, what the the hell? Like, this is the most arbitrary thing I've ever seen in my entire life. So I, I get really excited by people who are trying to separate out those concerns because we can truly, if we're, if we're willing to innovate, I'm not saying it'll be easy and I'm not saying it'll happen in the next year or two, but if we can truly innovate on food itself, we can start to make food a hell of a lot healthier. So that's one thing that I'm, I'm excited by. The second thing that I'm excited by is the notion of climate change. And, and the problem is when we think of climate change, we think of cars moving to electric, which by the way is going to have roughly, I don't know, an inconsequential impact in the time that it matters. On the other hand, you know, if you want to get really absurd, it turns out that probably our number one, the number one thing that's causing climate change right now is cow farts. Uh, yeah, I've heard, is that true? I've heard it. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Turns out cow farts are a real issue. Cows are kind of grazing and as they're grazing, you know, they're eating food and, you know, they're releasing methane. And that's that's a big issue. Now, why is this a huge issue? Well, as less developed nations become more developed nations, aka as China gets wealthier, they're eating more meat. This is natural. As societies get wealthier, they eat more meat. So now you have to ask, okay, but what's the scale of the problem? What's the magnitude of it? The first question you ask is, how much arable land on this planet, this basically means land not covered in ice, how much arable land on this planet is used for animal grazing? Do you have a sense? I have no idea. It's wild. It will blow your mind. Now, it's been a, a long time since I've liked this number, so I might butcher it a little bit, but I want to say it's about 40%. Wow. Okay, so this yeah. is everything that's not desert and mountains Correct. and yeah yeah wow. now let's go even further what percentage of arable land on this planet is covered in cities Ooh, that's a good question uh i'm gonna guess it's actually pretty long i'm gonna say like 10 percent, eight percent three so what you realize is that animal farming is an enormous enormous problem that we have and if i double the amount of people who eat meat that 40% just went to 80%. Wow. And that the impact on our climate is huge. And you know, there's pros and cons to all these companies. So I, I don't want to, I don't want to universally say they're perfect, but companies like Impossible Foods, which I'll caveat I'm an investor in, but I invested because I got really excited by what they were doing. In fact, as was reported in the press, I actually gave them a, a very healthy offer to go join Google. Um, I tried to buy them into Google. That's how excited I was by them. And uh, and that didn't work for whatever reason. But I think companies like that, there's nowhere near enough of. I get excited by having not one or two or five of those companies, but where are the hundreds and hundreds of companies trying to truly innovate on food production and food nutrition? To me, those are incredibly large problems. Yeah, and they directly tie in with a healthcare system. Like, let's say you do eat chocolate every single day. It's not healthy for you. You are probably going to be visiting the doctor a little bit more often than if you don't. One of the cool things is there's a big movement now for food as medicine, which I get really excited by, because if we can apply more science to this, we can also apply some of the good parts. And I know I know, saying pharma is like a bad word in the world, and for the most part, it really is. But it turns out that there's some real science there, right? And if we can start looking at food and saying, what is the most optimal thing for your body, we can make a real dent. Now, today, in the year 2023, where we have, I don't know, AGI on our footsteps and self-driving cars, you know, outside my house every time I leave my house, we still don't have basic agreement on is cholesterol good for you or bad for you? Should you eat eggs? Should you not eat eggs? Like the most basic things we cannot agree on. Why can't we agree? It seems it's pretty straightforward. There's science. Like you should be able to figure it out. 
Well, there's a couple reasons. One obviously comes down to the incentives. Remember those food groups you learned in school? The food pyramid, I think? Yeah, isn't it like complete bullshit? Yeah, it's all bullshit. It's like created by food companies that are like trying to sell their grains. You know, it's like, okay, so so what you realize is incentives get in the way. But the other thing is, remember how I mentioned earlier how there's not this concept of just core operating system for healthcare. It's really easy for Apple to be the arbiter of truth. They're, it's very easy for them to say, that app is accessing your contacts. That app is using your data. That app is using your battery. They're the operating system. Well, there is no mediator. There is no operating system for healthcare. There is nobody that is sitting there tracking your health on a daily basis. And if there was, then it'd be really easy. It'd be like, well, Turner, this was your health before you ate this thing. This is your health afterwards. This is crap. Or, hey, this one's really good. This would expand to far beyond food. So, you know, we love Western medicine. We're in the West and we look at Eastern medicine. And we, ah, there's no science behind that. Well, look, I think it'd be pretty surprising at this point with the amount of years, amount of people who've been through that. If like, if there wasn't some truth to some of it, but we don't know which parts. Now, let me go even further. We love to take for granted that Western medicine is, you know, all real, et cetera, but I'm pretty sure a lot of it's bullshit, right? But again, we don't know. We're not measuring that on a daily basis. And so what we do is we allow people to measure something in a lab under the circumstance. I mean, it's, it's like the most biased thing in the entire world. You let like the pharma company do their own trials and tell you that their shit's safe. It's like, do you know who I don't trust to do their own trial? It's like, it's like, imagine you were submitting an app to the app store and um, for the iPhone and Apple was like, are you malware? And you're like, <laughs> nope, I'm not malware. And they're like, okay, well, you said you're not malware. Okay. Sounds good. You know, like, and it's like, come on, this is, I don't know, this is third grade. Come on. We got to do better than this. So, so I get very excited about a notion of, and I hope that Ford can contribute to this. I hope that we can build an operating system for healthcare that in some ways, really only has one or two goals. Like if you go talk to any of our doctors, they're like, you know, our goal is to have the world's best outcomes. And I don't actually think that's the case. I don't want to be the company with the best outcomes. I want to be the company that enables those best outcomes. My goal is one thing and one thing only. I want to increase the rate of innovation in healthcare. The same way Apple, like if you go look at your iPhone, like what's your favorite app on your iPhone? It's probably Twitter. Okay, sure. I've asked this to like 200 people. Nobody has ever said an app created by Apple. Apple creates kind of shitty apps. Can we just agree, right? Like the Notes app is not exactly amazing. Messages is pretty simple. But you know what? Apple creates the operating system that enables everything from the TikToks to the Spotify's to the Twitters, right? And so what they've done is they've made it really easy to contribute to the world of mobile computing. And I want to make it really easy to contribute to the world of healthcare. If we can do that, I actually think that we become the arbiters of truth and we empower people from all around, whether you're a doctor, whether you're a researcher, whether you're a kid at home with an idea, I want you to contribute to the world of healthcare in a safe, rapid, cheap way. And if we can do that, dear God, the world's going to be amazing. Obviously, as you can tell, it's something I care pretty deeply about. This is hopefully my life's work. Hopefully I can make a difference on this planet. And I will just keep, keep, keep going on that until we get there. You've said before, you're really impressed with Zuck. They just launched Threz last night. Why do you like Zuck? What's your thoughts around everything that he's doing? What I love about Zuck, and I can give tons of critiques. I want to be clear. I'm not like a pure fanboy here. But what I love about Zuck is primarily two things. The first is he comes to his conclusions from first principles. And even when everybody, everybody is beating him up for it, he does not back off to what he knows to be correct. During the, during the kind of Trump election, everybody was like, 
I mean, Zuck, you're the most terrible person. You're the most terrible person. You're most and he took a stance of, I do not believe that Facebook should be in the business of censoring content. Like, I do not want us in that business. I don't think it's right for humanity. By the way, I agreed with him, and everybody in Silicon Valley was beating this guy up. He was like the devil incarnate in Silicon Valley. And you know what? He stuck by his guns. Now, a few years later, now that we've seen the Twitter files and all this shit, every single one of us is going, thank you, Zuck, you did the right thing, right? And we're like eating our words. But he stuck by his guns on something that he knew to be right. I give a lot of respect to somebody who will do the unpopular thing, not selfishly, like this selfish thing for him was to go get involved and start censoring. It would have been much easier, but he said this is not the right thing, and I, I massively respect that. And then the second thing is, and let's kind of look at that same time period as an example. Zuck is worth know, tens of billions, maybe a hundred billion. I don't know what the number is, but it's a hell of a lot more than you and me. And you know what? He's been at that company for what, 20 years? Something on that order? When you go into work and everyone hates you, your employees hate you, the world hates you, and you still keep showing up for something you believe in, that's badass. That is the man in the arena. That is the man I respect, right? I see this with the most true entrepreneurs. I'm really close with Marissa Mayer. Uh, she's a good friend of mine and she's got a startup. And you know what? I just see her like, she's worth, I don't know, billion dollars. I don't know what the number is, right? She doesn't have to show up every day, but she's like, I am passionate about this problem. This problem needs to be solved and I am going to go after it. And doing that when it's inconvenient, like that's real sacrifice. Those are the people that I respect, the people who get in the arena and they take the punches and they just keep going. I think people don't have enough appreciation for that or true understanding of exactly how hard that is. Yeah, it's very hard to find, hard to execute on too. It's hard to last. It's a lonely, lonely place to be. And I know people like don't feel sorry for a billionaire and blah, blah, blah. And I get that. And frankly, you know, if I can be totally honest, Zuck asked me to work at Facebook and I said no. So it's like I, I wasn't jumping to go work there, but I massively respect his perseverance. One more question I'll let you go. Do you have a favorite interview question that you like asking just to find the best people? Mine's not actually that that unique, but I'll tell you that it works incredibly, incredibly well. I don't ask it incredibly directly, but what I do is I just start walking through somebody's history of, you know, their life. It could be work, could be not work. And then what I do is I try to get something where I see their eyes light up, where I'm like, oh, they're passionate about this one. That's the one they're really excited by. And then I just start asking a hundred questions to go deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. It could be anything. I was talking to a guy the other day, I remodeled my house and I was so, it was so awesome. I remodeled my house this summer. I'm like, okay, cool. You know, tell me about the, the remodel. He tells me about it. I go, oh, okay. Um, what kind of walls did you use? Oh, and then he tells me about the walls. Okay. The, 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 the molding at the bottom, what kind of molding did you use? Where they come together? Does it chamfer? Does it not? Did you paint them separately? Did you not? And all I'm trying to do is I'm trying to find the limits of how deep did you go? And what I want to see is I want to see somebody who, whatever they're passionate about, whatever they care about, that they're not oblivious to it, that they went so fucking deep that they are now the world leading expert in that building's moldings connecting to the wall and the chamfer and the angle and the cut and how the paint's sitting inside that molding while not collecting and whatever dumb thing. So it's often things I don't know anything about. I interviewed somebody the other day who, believe it or not, she cares about sharks to an insane degree. And oh my God, I asked her all the way down to the breeding patterns, the food they eat, how come they can metabolize this food and not this food. And I'll be honest, she knew all of it. Um, and I was like, okay, you go deep. And that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for a sense of intellectual curiosity. I'm looking for a sense of mastery of a subject. And when I when I see that and I see them light up, then I go, well, you know what? If they light up here, they're probably going to do really, really great work. Yeah, because you know that they, they can become an expert in something and you know that they're they're going to put in the work. I want people who want to be the best. 
You know, just be the best at whatever it is you're doing. Just go insanely deep. I'm learning to, I'm learning to be a pilot right now. It's something I picked up recently. I'm a terrible, terrible pilot right now. And I have two instructors. One instructor, any question I ask, he answers, he answers. And then I have another instructor who I've only had one lesson with him. And I asked him, but how's this button work? Oh, you don't need to know that. How's this button work? Oh, I don't know. We don't use that. And I was just like, you're not the 10,000 hour expert. You're not the person that I want to learn. I want to learn from the person who... If it's there and it's part of it, we're going to get to the bottom of it and we're going to figure it out. A lot of what I live for is is a notion of intellectual curiosity and intellectual pursuit, and I want to see that in others. So we ran a little over on time and had to cut kind of quickly at the end there. It was a pretty thought-provoking conversation, and I hope we all learned something. If you want to support the show, the best ways are to leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts, like, comment, subscribe on YouTube, and share this with one friend who might like it. If you don't want to miss an episode, subscribe to the newsletter in the show notes and you'll get new ones in your inbox the moment they drop. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next time.